Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. It was known as the Friendly Invasion, the day when the first U.S. servicemen docked in Northern Ireland in 1942. But by 1945, around 300,000 U.S. troops had landed, making a lasting impact on the social and political fabric of the region. But why were so many U.S. soldiers in Northern Ireland? Why was it that the first place in Europe that American soldiers set foot during the Second World War was Belfast, of all places? And did they only bring with them good humour, gums and nylon tights? Or was there a darker side to this American invasion? Well, this is the Warfare Podcast. I'm your host, James Rogers. And to find out, I'm joined by Dr. Simon Topping of the University of Plymouth. Simon is the author of a new book, Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War, out now and published by Bloomsbury. And this makes him the perfect person to take us through this little known but fascinating chapter of Second World War history. Enjoy. Hi Simon, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thanks for having me on. Not a problem at all. Here at the Warfare Podcast, we are still aiming to reveal those hidden or forgotten histories of war. And today, the chat with you is no different, especially in terms of your research on Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War. So take us back to the start of this fascinating slice of World War II history, back to that point in the wake of Pearl Harbour. And my question for you, Simon, is what made Northern Ireland a place that the US wanted to or needed to start to station troops? I think there are a number of reasons for this, some political, some military. I mean, ultimately, the military, I think, outweighs the political, but there is an obvious political dimension to this. The context of it is the Battle of the Atlantic, at least initially. So although American troops arrive in Northern Ireland in January 1942, preparations have been put in place since about January 1941. So under the guise of land-lease, the Americans start building bases in Northern Ireland, particularly in the port of Londonderry. Now, there's a degree of subterfuge about this. Roosevelt says it's kind of nothing really to do with him. Americans can work wherever they want. Isolationist Republicans reckon that this is Roosevelt getting a bit too cosy with Churchill, trying to drag America into the war. And there is something to be said for that. This could be seen as provocative. Now, the practical 
element of it is that Londonderry was the main UK port for defending the Atlantic. And the political and the military dimension goes back to the return of the Treaty Ports of Era, now the Republic of Ireland, in 1937 or 1938, which meant that the Western approaches of the Atlantic were no longer defended. And de Valera, the Prime Minister of Era, was not prepared to give these up. Not unreasonably, as a neutral state, he was not prepared to do this. So it meant that there was a need to fortify Northern Ireland, and this was the naval base at Derry and also flambeau bases in Fermanagh. So this has all gone on in 1941. October 1941, Churchill gets in touch with Roosevelt and suggests that Roosevelt send an American division to Northern Ireland. Now, this is two months before Pearl Harbour. He was using Iceland as a model because the British had occupied Iceland. This garrison had been replaced by an American garrison and he thought something similar could happen in Northern Ireland. But obviously, Iceland was neutral and Northern Ireland wasn't. And so was the aim there to free up some British troops so they could be moved to other parts of the United Kingdom or to other parts of the British Empire? Was this a way to slowly try and entice Roosevelt into the European theatre? Yes, what people forget is that actually there was quite a big British garrison in Northern Ireland post-Dunkirk. There were about 70,000 UK troops in Northern Ireland. Fear of an invasion through ERA is part of the military dimension to this. And as when the Americans arrive, it releases these forces to North Africa primarily and allows the Americans to have a training ground for their troops who have been kind of the first troops to arrive are National Guardsmen. So they have been rushed across the Atlantic and they can complete their training in Northern Ireland. So that's part of what's going on. Now, there's also the political dimension in that both Roosevelt and Churchill disliked Emmon de Valera, the Prime Minister of ERA. And this was a way of advertising that displeasure with ERA's neutrality. Now, De Valera and others pointed out that the Americans didn't join the war until they were attacked. The Soviets didn't join the war until they were attacked. So Arab was going to sit tight. And if it was attacked, then it would join the Allies and it would seek the assistance of the Allies. But until that point, it had half of its forces on its southern coast and the other half facing the border with Northern Ireland. The Americans did have vague contingency plans, the way in which militaries war game this sort of stuff. They had contingency plans on how they would invade ERA. They reckoned they could be in Dublin in a couple of hours. So the first high part delegation came over in, I think it was about April 1942, and it included Avril Harriman and Harry Hopkins and George Marshall. They did an inspection and reported back that they could be in Dublin in a couple of hours. So if they needed the whole of the Ireland of Ireland, then they had plans to take it? Yes. The sense was that they would not do this unilaterally, that they would come in in response to a German invasion. And the British had this tacit agreement with Aris forces that this is what would happen. Actually, cooperation between the UK and Aris forces was actually, it was quite good. Now, further up the political chain, Churchill and De Valera didn't get on, but at a local level, each side knew that this was in their interests. 
So this is the fascinating politics of independence, isn't it? When we have all the debates about Scotland today, one of the key arguments for staying together is that Britain will lose all of its nuclear bases up in Scotland and we'll need to rejig everything and our deep sea ports. And it's kind of the same when it comes to the island of Ireland. And so Northern Ireland becomes that last point that's really important to reinforce and provides the United States with this stepping stone. Am I right in thinking then that Northern Ireland becomes the first place in Europe that American soldiers set foot during the Second World War? Yes. I mean, that depends whether you believe Iceland is in Europe or not. But yeah, so it's certainly the first place in the UK that we see American forces. And it's actually, it's really interesting you use the term stepping stone because that's one of the terms that's used around about the first anniversary of the Americans arriving. The Belfast Telegraph issues a booklet to the new contingent, which is called Uncle Sam's Stepping Stone to Berlin. So that's actually one of the titles I was going to choose for the book, but the publisher overruled me on See, that. They don't always know best, Simon. That would have been a no. great title, although I'm sure that the current book cover and title are absolutely perfect. How many troops are we talking about here? Are we talking 10,000, 20,000? What level of troop deployment is sent to Northern Ireland? Initially, it's about four to 6,000 in the first wave in January 1942. There are several other waves throughout 1942. So by about September, October, there are about 40,000 US troops. These are quickly deployed to North Africa for Operation Torch. Now, after that, the American presence is naval. And there's also Air Force bases, which are for repair, preparation, training, rather than for combat missions. And then from about October 1943, the Americans pour in in huge numbers. By January 1944, there are 100,000 Americans in Northern Ireland, which represents about 10% of the population. Now, it is reckoned that around 300,000 passed through at different points during the war. Uh, this is a figure that comes from the, the official war history written in the 1950s, the Northern Ireland's official war history. Now, I've been chatting to a local historian who reckons that figure's a bit high, but certainly American sources say that there were 100,000 Americans in Northern Ireland in January 1944. Now, they don't all stay very long and they disappear pretty much within a month of D-Day. So by the summer of 1944, most of them are pretty much all of them are gone, and all that remains are the naval stations and the Air Force bases. I mean, they could stay there a week, Simon, and I can imagine that 100,000 American troops are still going to make a lasting impact. I was in Reykjavik a couple of years ago, and there was a marine detachment that were part of an operation that was going on, a training operation. And the entire part of this marine detachment head off into the streets of Reykjavik and drink the entire city dry. So let's think back to Northern Ireland and the Second World War. What sort of societal impact do they have? Do you start to have a really big, good Northern Irish welcome? Or are people a little bit hesitant about, what could you call it, a friendly invasion? It is certainly called the friendly invasion. And I'd like to take you back to the issue of drink for a moment, if I might. They certainly attempted to drink Northern Ireland dry, but by all accounts, they failed. We have a tendency when we look at this sort of stuff to idealise it. Uh, the Americans did bring a variety of problems, a lot of which surrounded alcohol. 
the police and local authorities complained that they drank too much whiskey, they couldn't hold their drink, and then there are stories of them drinking pochine, which you may not be familiar with. This is Irish potato whiskey. So it's this illegal drink, it's basically moonshine, which you get in kind of rural areas of Northern Ireland. And this was being sold to the Americans, to great hilarity from the locals and great concern from the military. But to go back to your point about reception, one of the big issues in Northern Ireland, as you might imagine, is that it's a divided society. And nationalists obviously want to join ERA. Uh, they are somewhat ambivalent about the war. Unionists, on the other hand, are pro-war, even though this doesn't necessarily mean that there's mass recruitment because we don't have conscription for reasons dating back to the First World War. So from the unionist perspective, this is great. The unionist government is not consulted about the dispatch of American troops. The unionist government is told about it, but they are delighted. What this does is it puts Northern Ireland briefly at the centre of the war effort. Northern Ireland can do its bit. Now, it does its bit in terms of shipbuilding, in terms of industry, and in terms of geography. And geography is the real important thing that Northern Ireland brings to the war. But from unionists, it is a chance to publicise Northern Ireland, publicise the union, accentuate differences between Northern Ireland and ERA, and advertise this you know, to the Americans and say, we're on your side, they're not. And Northern Ireland's helping you in your hour of need, uh, this other lot down the road are staying out of the greatest conflict in human history. Now, the response of the nationalist population or nationalist politicians is pretty much the opposite. So when the Americans arrive, there are rehearsed protests about the fact that the government in Dublin wasn't consulted and that this is an outrage. And uh, one politician, an MP from Derry, says that if we could throw the Americans out, we would, but we can't, so we're just going to ignore them. So you have this kind of full outrage about the constitutional status of Northern Ireland. They know that the United States doesn't have to ask Dublin's permission to come in. And the response of the US is that they have consulted the legitimate government, and this is British territory, and that's the end of it. Now, at a personal level, at a local level, the Americans are broadly welcomed by both communities. And early reports from the Ministry of Information suggest that nationalists actually do welcome them. Because as the report says, the Americans are actually quite difficult to dislike. They are, to use the local parlance, they're good crack. They're personable, they've got a kind of joie de vivre about them. And what the Ministry of Information, now this is the single report in mid-1942, so there's a Ministry of Information report from mid-June 1942, and it states that the response of both communities is really positive. And what they also find is that hostility is higher where there are no Americans stationed, which I thought was really interesting. It's also worth pointing out that a lot of the Americans were stationed west of the ban, which kind of divides Northern Ireland in, in two. And they were often stationed in areas with majority Catholic populations. So there is that dimension to it. Now, this isn't, there's nothing sinister about this. This is simply where they're going to be training, closer to the border, admittedly, uh, but where they're carrying out their training. So this actually serves to lessen 
tensions. Now, there is propaganda emanating from the German legation in Dublin and from some elements in ERA's political establishment saying that the Americans are behaving badly, that they're a bunch of drunkards and so on. So there are efforts to offset this, including propaganda film from 1943 called A Letter from Ulster, which is a very conscious effort by local filmmakers to challenge this idea. And actually, for the most part, they are made welcome. Now, there are other elements to this that, again, going back to an earlier point about idealising the American presence, we should be very wary of that. When the Americans arrived, the IRA used that as a pretext to launch a new campaign. And there's a manifesto that's found during the summer of 1942, which says that if the Americans become involved, then that's their lookout and they will attack them. And the unionist press, and to a degree the police, are happy to promote this and even exaggerate this. Because ultimately, there are no attacks on the Americans beyond some beatings under the blackout. They're never fired upon, weapons are never stolen from them, bases are never attacked. So there's a kind of rhetorical hostility towards the Americans, which is more about advertising the grievances about partition than it is about actually attacking the Americans. So the Americans are deeply embroiled in that politics of partition, even if they don't know it. Or had they been briefed beforehand? Did they get one of those famous pamphlets that were deployed to troops before they were deployed? Something to read to give you an insight into the local culture, the local politics, the what you're meant to do and what you're meant to not do? Not initially. Initially, the Americans weren't told where they were going. Now, rumours had been rife that they were going to end up in Northern Ireland. And the first soldier down the gang plank, Milburn Hankey, asked a sailor, Royal Navy sailor, where they were. And he went, that's Belfast. And interestingly, they arrive and the Unionist press wants to get some quotations. And they're stum, you know, they really won't give quotations that can then be used. So by the time of the second deployment, the US military has issued a pocket guide called a pocket guide to Northern Ireland. And on the bottom of page two, it says, don't argue religion, don't argue politics. And that's pretty much all it needs to say. But there's all sorts of other stuff about the beer and courtship and the geography and the history and so on. But it's kind of stay out of it. It's none of our business. And there's a particular message. There's another booklet that's issued to soldiers that go elsewhere in the UK, which says, you know, we don't care whose side our grandfathers were on the Civil War, so don't bring your grievances. If you're an Irish-American soldier, don't bring your grievances to this war. I'm paraphrasing, but it says it's only polite to be nice to your hosts, but it's a military necessity to be good to your allies. So it's a kind of constant fear. The US consul in Belfast, a guy called Parker Berman, sends a number of memos where he's really concerned that soldiers of Irish extraction could be susceptible to appeals from the IRA. And he's also concerned about American soldiers being attacked. Now, these attacks, I think that they mount to brawling rather than anything particularly organised. It is a problem, but it's one that's exaggerated, I think, by the unionist press. And I think Berman overstates it. June on Not Just the Tudors, we're honouring Queen Elizabeth II's Platinum Jubilee. 
by focusing on queenship in the 16th and 17th centuries. I'm Professor Suzanne Lipscomb, and all this month with my guests, I'll be exploring the coronations of Tudor queens, queens in Shakespeare, queens regnant and queens consort, who wielded power in ways we haven't thought about. Then there's the queen who ruled over the Spanish Netherlands and the female Swedish king. You heard that right. So for a month of all things magisterial and monarchical, look no further than Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One of the things we often forget about the Second World War is the fact that there were so many towns and cities outside of London that were bombed pretty heavily, so many secret blitzes across the entirety of each part of the United Kingdom. And that's no different when it comes to Northern Ireland. You had the Belfast Blitz, and I believe Derry, London Derry, was also hit by some bombs during the Second World War. Did this deployment of American troops make Northern Ireland a target for Luftwaffe bombing? I'm assuming that it was chosen as well. It was pretty far away for Luftwaffe pilots to get across and drop their bombs, but they did. And so when they did, did that turn the local population a little bit against the Americans? You know, we're only being bombed because of you, or was Northern Ireland always going to be on Hitler's list because of its industrial base and its ports? Well, the Blitz in Belfast took place in April and May 1941, so it's before 
the Americans come in. However, the building of the bases is announced in June and local officials and I think it's the Royal Navy say that the publicity surrounding this looks like an invitation to bombing. And you've already been hit once, twice in fact, and this looks provocative. And one of the things I sort of talk a little bit about in the book is the sense that this Roosevelt could have used this as a pretext. So if a base with American technicians, as they were called, was bombed, then that could have been Roosevelt's pretext to, if not get involved in the war, then certainly to escalate American aid to Britain. So there is a concern about that. But part of the reason Northern Ireland is chosen, particularly for the training of pilots and the making planes battle ready, is because it's out of the way. One of the things that the Americans do do is they have facilities in Prestwick in Scotland um, so that if one is bombed, the other can still function. So Northern Ireland is just about out of range uh, at this point. And this obviously, 1942 is after the Blitz. So German bombing of the UK becomes much more sporadic until the terror weapons of 1943-44. So it is comparatively safe. There's a sense there that this is kind of provocative. Now, it would have been provocative wherever they put them. It would have been an invitation to bombing. But when you add in the other dimensions to this, then it becomes a little bit more complicated. That's really interesting. So it could have been almost a trigger if Pearl Harbor had not happened, if the Luftwaffe were, well, perhaps a bit stupid enough to go in and bomb American troops. That could have been a way for Roosevelt to justify a much greater entry into the war. I've uh, never thought about it like that. Yeah, would you have a de facto naval alliance in the North Atlantic where the Americans will bring supplies halfway across and then hand them over to the Royal Navy? So this kind of cooperation already exists and you could argue that what's happening in Northern Ireland is simply an extension of that. It is a de facto alliance and that Northern Ireland is part of that. There's also a sense that these, just going back to the bases, that these bases, even at the time, American journalists, British journalists, Local journalists were speculating that this was for an eventual American deployment. You know, they're coming over here and building these bases and Londonderry becomes the main American port in Europe for the first year of their involvement in the war. Now, one question that I've got to ask you, Simon, is about race, because, of course, the American soldiers coming over have a lot of different political views and they're not just white soldiers coming over as well. So how does race factor into their deployment in Northern Ireland? The UK government did not want African-American soldiers to be sent. Officials and some of the views of officials are not flattered by posterity. Officials were concerned about what they euphemistically called brown babies, you know, what was going to happen a year after African-American soldiers were deployed. Not much of a euphemism, is it, Simon? It's pretty, uh, pretty clear. Yeah, and the American military advisors who had come in to sort of lay the groundwork said to their superiors that under no circumstances should black soldiers be sent. The US military's attitude, now bear in mind, as you'll be aware, and your listeners will no doubt be aware, the American military was segregated. African-American soldiers were relegated to menial roles, to non-combat roles. They were discriminated against at every level. But the American military said that because the UK had petitioned the Americans to send troops, they would get what they were given. And 
African-American soldiers would be sent in proportion to their numbers in the population and in the military. So the first African-American soldiers arrived in Northern Ireland in kind of May or June. Some African-American sailors had already arrived and there had been issues around that. Now, the welcome given to them, broadly speaking, seems to have been positive. There are some great stories about the response of the locals to African-Americans. There's a story, and this may well be apocryphal, but there's a story of a black GI going into a shop in a village called Bestbrook. And the young lady behind the counter says, good morning, sir. Uh, this soldier looks behind him to see who she's talking to because he's never been called sir before. And what black soldiers find, and this is throughout the UK, is that they are treated pretty well by a white population, which they're not used to. One of the things that the UK government did, and this was followed in Northern Ireland, was that it refused to institute a colour bar. It refused to enforce American patterns of segregation, and it refused to allow the police to do this. Now, if the Americans wanted to segregate and say, for example, black soldiers go to this pub, white soldiers go to this pub, black soldiers go to this town, white soldiers go to this town, the UK authorities weren't going to do that, and the Northern Ireland authorities were the same. But for the most part, it seems that African-Americans got on well with the population. And this seems to transcend sectarian lines in Northern Ireland. Now, that is not to say that there wasn't racism. There clearly was, and racist language was used against African-American soldiers. Sometimes they were targeted. The main issue around race was the fact that white Americans resented having African-Americans stationed with them and they resented the fact that the British and Northern Irish didn't impose a colour bar and they particularly resented interracial dating. And this was the cause of most of the problems in Northern Ireland within the American forces was brawling, fighting and so on between African-American and white soldiers, usually instituted by white soldiers. So this has been seen, and it could be a tendency to exaggerate this, but the presence of African-American soldiers, not specifically in Northern Ireland, but in the UK more generally, is seen as one of the triggers of the civil rights movement. So veterans go home and they are not prepared to be treated as second-class citizens because they have been abroad, they've fought for freedom, and they've been made welcome by a white population. But this kind of goes back to the idea that the American presence is an interlude. African-American soldiers are welcomed because they're not staying. So this is quite different from the Windrush generation after the war, when people of colour come from the empire and they're going to settle. They're going to bring their families. They're going to stay. This is a temporary expedient to win the war, which makes it much less complicated than you know mass immigration after the Second World War. But it seems that most African-American servicemen go home with happy memories. The USS Mason, which is the first American ship with a predominantly black crew, docks in Belfast in July of 1944. And the sailors are going ashore with some trepidation. And what they find is that they are not a novelty. You know, people just treat them as Americans. And one of them recalled that they saw us as American fighting men. They didn't see colour. And you get this a lot in correspondence. You know, that the Irish love us, the Irish treat us as if we're them, the girls love us. And this exacerbates white resentment. So it's another one of these elements of the American presence that is complicated and sometimes forgotten. But in, certainly in Northern Ireland, it doesn't have a lasting legacy. 
Well, the interesting thing there, Simon, is could one legacy be the fact that you do have this civil rights movement erupting in the United States after the war? And for those listeners interested, there's a great podcast with a friend of mine, Shama Ams, that you can search for in our back catalogue that covers all of this. But then when you take that full circle and you look at how the civil rights movement in the United States then inspires the civil rights marches back in Northern Ireland, back in the 60s and 70s, you can kind of see a tangential link and legacy around full circle. Yeah, there's an interesting circularity about that. Uh, The extent to which African-American soldiers were aware or interested in Northern Ireland's own system of Jim Crow or discrimination, that's something I'm always asked about. And my response is, I can't find anything that shows that African-Americans and Catholics identified with each other's oppression. Now, from the perspective of African-Americans, they are amidst a white population that treats them quite well. And that's their takeaway from it. From the perspective of Catholics, African-Americans are Americans. They're part of this, quote, occupation force that's there at the behest of the British that is reinforcing partition. So it doesn't seem that there is this, at the time at any rate, this identification with each other's oppression. Now, certainly once we get into the 1960s, there are parallels. So the Northern Ireland Civil Rights Association uses the songs and the iconography and to a degree the tactics of the US civil rights movement. And that is an inspiration to it. Now, obviously things go terribly, terribly wrong in Northern Ireland from the late 1960s onwards. And there's a divergence of a comparison, if you like, between these two movements. But there are certainly parallels in the 1960s. Well, let's have a think towards the end of the war now. When did the Americans finally leave, pack up, shop, head back to the United States? Did they all leave? I know it's said in the handbook, you know, you've got to be nice to the locals. How nice were the Americans to the locals? Do we have lots of family legacies going back, lots of marriages? Do Americans stay, set up business, spend the rest of their lives there? What are the legacies of this vast American deployment? Interestingly, the legacies, I think, are quite limited. It doesn't transform Northern Irish society. It doesn't make Northern Ireland any less conservative. It doesn't lessen sectarian or religious divisions. It doesn't unite Northern Ireland. What happens is because unionists champion the American presence and because nationalists largely ignore it, what we have is essentially a unionist narrative about the American presence and about the war. And this enables the Unionist establishment to fashion a message about the war. So the elements of legacy in that there was, for example, an American military cemetery at a place called Lisnabrini in East Belfast. And the Stormont government offered to look after this in perpetuity. So about 170 Americans died in accidents and brawls and so forth, mainly in accidents, and about 150 were buried at Lisnabrini. So Stormont offers to look after this in perpetuity as a symbol of what they would call Ulster-American friendship. But American policy is to repatriate bodies either to the main American cemetery in Cambridge or back home if that's what families want. So they thank the government for its offer, but this is maintained as a site of memory. There are also memorials to um, victims of air crashes 
So a number of Americans die in air crashes. They're flying in from usually from Newfoundland, sometimes via Scotland, and sometimes come in early in the morning and they're rookie pilots, rookie crews. So there are a number of tragedies. There's a permanent memorial unveiled, well actually it's temporary at the time, but in Belfast City Hall in January 1943 to mark the first anniversary. There's a memorial column put up to celebrate this. And when this is announced, the Unionist government invites senior Catholic clerics, it invites nationalist politicians, it invites the editor of the local nationalist newspaper, the Irish News. None of them come along. And one American newspaper reports this parade as the greatest spectacle in the UK since the war began. So that they make a big fuss over this. And this was initially a temporary memorial, but it becomes permanent. And when Bill Clinton comes over in the 90s, he rededicates this memorial and it's still there. Among all the other kind of Victoriana, First World War stuff and the Titanic memorial in and around Belfast City Hall, it's quite small, but it is there. Um, It's only about a metre or so tall. So that's a permanent memorial. After the war, there's talk of creating a war memorial museum, but that doesn't come around until the early 1960s. There is an entrepreneurial head of the Armagh Observatory who tries to persuade Stormont that Americans are all mad about astronomy, therefore Stormont should fund a planetarium at Armagh. This doesn't happen until the 1960s. And I suppose the main legacy is the fact that about 1,800 local women married American soldiers. But as far as I'm aware, they pretty much all went to the States. Now, there are legacies of illegitimacy, which in some cases are tied into recent scandals about mother and baby homes. But the American presence is kind of what Janet Gardner, who's written perhaps the best book on the home front during the war, calls the American presence an interlude. After which we kind of go back to normal, what passes for normal. And I think that's the case in Northern Ireland, too. Well, Simon, thank you so much for taking us through this fascinating and often forgotten, marginalised bit of Second World War history. And I know that you've released a new book to mark the 80th anniversary of this first American deployment to Northern Ireland. So tell us, what is the name of the book and where can we go and buy it? The book is called, quite simply, Northern Ireland, the United States and the Second World War. And it's out with Bloomsbury. Wonderful. Simon, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. 
Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.